Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Dan Benarsik, horticulturalist with Chanticleer Gardens in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dan. Good morning, Kathy. How are you today? Good. How are you? I couldn't be better. Last week's podcast, we talked about container gardening basics. And this week, we're going to do a kind of a 2.0 intermediate to expert level containers advanced with Dan. But first, we want to talk a little bit about him and the glories of Chanticleer. So, Dan, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins? No, I was born with chlorophyll on my hands. Uh, I actually grew up with one foot in my father's do-it-yourself home center and the other foot in my mother's third-generation retail flower shop. So I actually did have chlorophyll all over my hands, even growing up. Um, the funny thing was after growing up in a flower shop, I wanted to get as far away from the floral industry as possible. I guess I just didn't do a really good job of it. And so a lot of pollen as well as chlorophyll on there. (laughs) Pollen, profit, pressure, and petunias. I think that was pretty much my childhood. Yeah. So what made you want to run away from the flower shop? That sounds like an ideal childhood to me. Well, without delving into family dynamics, I just never understood why it was so important that everyone else's holiday table was so beautifully decorated at the cost of our own. (laughs) I just never was able to rationalize that. (laughs) That Yeah, that totally makes sense that, yeah, the holiday time, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, all of those would be consumed. And I think part of it was simply since I was brought up in the show, shop, I was interested in exploring other opportunities. Um, it just, as as life had it, I sort of circled back and ended up back in this portion of the industry, the public horticulture uh, portion, that I honestly never knew existed. I thought every plant was for profit, and that's all I ever knew. Um, but like I say, the ability of, of public horticulture uh, to actually have a career of that um, was new to me. Public horticulture to me was when mom and dad loaded us into the into the car and drove around Longwood Gardens at Christmas time, not even going in necessarily, just driving around the gardens, looking at the Christmas lights in the trees. That was the extent of public horticulture to me. One night, one time a year with a lot of people and it was cold. <laughs> and so you were brought up near Longwood and that was your experience. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, which is in Mm -hmm. the the very top of Newcastle County, the northernmost county of our three counties in Delaware, which is about, uh, as the crow flies, probably 10 or 11 miles from Longwood. So right right in the heart of the Delaware Valley. Such a beautiful area and so many great public gardens. Well, it's it's interesting, Kathy. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, like you said, there are a lot of public gardens and horticulture, and we can touch on that a little bit later, and I'd like to. is that uh, because of this concentration of horticulture, a lot of talent has come into this area. Um, A lot of people that we share in common as friends and we know in the industry have come into this area. And I I 
pride myself on being one of the few people that's actually from here. Um, there's not many of us uh, in the industry and actually from here. Yeah, that's great that you're homegrown, so to speak. Absolutely. So did you pursue a degree in horticulture or did you go into another career first and, and come back? Well, I'll, I'll keep this relatively short, as, as is the success story of this um, endeavor. I went to the University of Delaware, um, basically because I wasn't really sure what I was doing. And, and all of my other friends were going to college. And my parents uh, were, I was fortunate enough that my parents uh, could send me to college. And I went and I pursued a degree in uh, civil engineering, actually, um, I thought it was just fantastic that you could wear a pressed cotton shirt, chinos, and work boots. I thought that was the coolest uniform possible and was the extent of my logic in declaring civil engineering. <laughs> that lasted about one semester <clears throat> when the uh, mathematics component of that reared up. Suffice it to say, I, I lingered at the university undeclared for several semesters after that. Um, but during that time, I was taking some landscape design and plant identification classes and just general basic uh, horticulture classes, oddly enough, and not hating them. And more importantly, I was passing those classes. So um, after a brief encounter with a guidance counselor where he locked me in his office and said, you have got to declare something, I declared pants science. And I realized the degree was important. And I just needed to secure that degree and things would sort itself out in the work world with a degree afterwards. And uh, I will cut to the next segue. Um, it was the last summer before I was to graduate. And I answered essentially what was a lawn cutting position, thinking this is my last summer to fluff off before I have to get a real job. Clearly, I had a plan. Um, I answered a, a, this reply to a place called Mount Cuba crazy name. It was only about 10 miles away from where I was living. And um, I answered that to Claire Sawyers, who was the administrative assistant at Mount Cuba at the time, currently director of the Scott Arboretum in Swarthmore. Um, so Claire and I have the longest relationship in this entire industry together because of me answering that ad. I started cutting lawns at Mount Cuba and I left there six years later as the Woods Path Gardener. Um, and having been introduced to public horticulture that way. Wow, what a treat. There's a little story for you. <laughs> so much for civil engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, but you still get to wear those chinos if you want to, right? Well, that's why I enjoy lecturing and teaching, <laughs> because I get to put on clean clothes and wear work boots. It gives you authenticity and credibility, but you can still get clean. I love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, and Mount Cuba is, is one of our other mid-Atlantic treasures and such a wonderful garden. Speaking of those mid-Atlantic treasures, I do want to put a plug in for the America's Garden Capital. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, that's kind of a um, hmm, sore point with us down in D.C. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> but, we, but we will let you have that. Very good. So we can do that now or later. It's entirely Oh, go ahead. Okay. So very quickly, for those that are not aware, because D.C. is within striking distance of, of the Delaware Valley and where we are, um, I want to point out the America's Garden Capital. And if you go to that website, americasgardencapital.com, it is a marketing campaign for the gardens in this area. 30 gardens in Arboreta within 30 miles, a wonderful concentration. And as I mentioned, within striking distance of many of your listeners. Um, but if you go to the website, 
you can see the assortment of gardens and plan a visit. Don't just come to visit one. Assemble a nice itinerary and visit a few. Um, it's a great way to do it. And you can bring your garden passport and get your passport stamped at all the gardens that you do visit. So hopefully um, some of your listeners can indulge in this and take advantage of it and see some of our, like you say, our horticultural treasures in the Delaware Valley. That will be incredible to get that passport filled up this summer post-COVID and get out and see those beautiful gardens. That's right. It's the passport that you can use right now. The mm-hmm. other ones are very good to it. <laughs> One way to travel without leaving the country. Right. And, and hopefully safely uh, since you're outside and socially distanced. And and hopefully and hopefully that soreness will subside. So we'll see what we can do about that. Mm-hmm. And Dan, do you know if all of the public gardens in your area in the Philadelphia area and Delaware have reopened or are there still restrictions on some? I believe there are some, but in all honesty, because of the number of gardens and the fact that it's springtime, I actually haven't really thought much about it. I've been <laughs> just trying to keep my own head together, if you know what I mean. Um, most, most of the bigger players, uh, the larger gardens in the Delaware Valley are open. Uh, each of us have our own strategies for spacing and distancing and limiting numbers. Uh, Just for example, Chanticleer, we simply ask that you visit our website and make an online parking reservation. These are free reservations, but we simply are managing our numbers by the amount of cars that we have parked at any one time. It's a wonderful benefit because it's taken out the busy times and spread the visitation over the course of the day and the week. And frankly, our numbers have gone up with this in place rather than going down. So we just ask you to make a parking reservation first. And like I say, each of the gardens in this area each have their own strategies about how they're distancing and spacing people. That's really smart to do the parking reservations because, yeah, it can get crowded at certain times. And then then other times you have the whole garden to yourself, which isn't a bad thing, actually. And, you know, with the amount of people that is in here, the garden is very comfortable. It's beautiful. It's it's it really has just increased the overall experience. Um, with our guests. And once they've gotten over the initial hump of, of you know, something new in technology, every, everybody loves it. They really like it. And speaking of which, Chanticleer is one of those gardens that closes for the winter time. So you've recently reopened for the season. Uh, what can visitors expect when they are visiting in the next month or so? Uh, my fresh, my, my, my legs, Kathy, because I'm in shorts. It's springtime. <laughs> now, the fact that it's 28 degrees out there this morning, I probably need to have my head examined, but, uh, well, it's probably not what you're asking about. It's, it's a volatile spring. And, you know, everybody says, oh, it's, it's an unusual spring. After all these years, what is a normal spring? I don't know what a normal spring looks like. Exactly. Uh, like I said, we just had a frost last evening. The last two consecutive evenings, we've had frosts. So uh, let's see. Uh, our early magnolias uh, came and went very quickly. Our later magnolias were absolutely spectacular. This has been a cherry year like none other that we can remember. And the daffodils and early spring ephemeral bulbs have just lasted seemingly forever. So the very last Daffodil and Narcissus are really just tailing off now. But as that's happening, the early tulips are just beginning to peek out, excuse me, show some color and really start their displays. Um, A thousand shades of green is indicative of our mid-Atlantic deciduous hardwood forests 
And that's what I'm seeing right now looking out the windows as everything is breaking bud. And hopefully last evening's cold is the last hurdle that we're really going to have to deal with this season. I hope so, too, because that was a little scary, I will say. Uh, yes. <laughs> so Chanticleer, uh, let's talk a little bit about the garden's background and how mm-hmm. did it get that name? Well, let's, uh, let me see if I get my history spiel right. Chanticleer was the summer home of the Rosengarten family. Okay, And the Rosengartens were wealthy Philadelphia industrialists who made their money the old-fashioned way in drugs, wholesale pharmaceuticals. Um, they had a very successful wholesale pharmaceutical production plant in South Philly. Their primary residence was very close to the plant. Um, they are one of the small foundation stones that Merck Pharmaceuticals stands on today. Uh, the uh, family built a summer home, um, bought a property in the 1912-1913 in the western suburbs um, of Philadelphia, known as the Main Line, referring to the Main Line from of the Pennsylvania Railroad from Philadelphia to Harrisburg. And this was one of the western suburbs, uh, not far from Villanova University's campus, just as a, an idea. And uh, this was the summer home. And after a few years, they effectively made the summer home their primary residence, moving out of the city. Um, Two generations of Rosengartens lived on this property, and it was the second generation, um, Adolf Rosengarten, who really sensed the encroachment of development in the suburbs and wanted to protect green space, uh, to nurture it, and to create a green space that was accessible to residents of Radnor Township. Now, Radnor Township is the township in which Chanticleer exists, but obviously we have opened that beyond members of the township, although members of the township do enjoy certain benefits uh, with Chanticleer. And uh, it was Adolf's decision and guidance that set up our endowment and gave us a very open-ended but not limitless um, direction to pursue. That is to create a wonderful experience and a welcome and inviting green space uh, free from development that could be protected and enjoyed by people in the future. So that is, in in a nutshell, our guidelines. And it's a wonderful thing to know that my job every day is to come in and um, create beauty and sustain beauty uh, for others to enjoy. It's a a wonderful charge to have. And the side name of Chanticleer or mission is Chanticleer, a pleasure garden. A pleasure garden. Actually, let me jump back. You did ask the question where the name Chanticleer came from. Now, there are two two stories there. Um, one is a reference to the Chanticleer, the rooster, in a in one of the Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Uh, so the, the rooster, uh, the Chanticleer, has become our sort of default icon, if you will, and you'll see different Chanticleers around the garden. Um, not like a theme park style, just very subtle ones. And the other was a, a reference to a James Thackeray novel. Uh, it referred to a mystic mansion that was being built um, and that was mortgaged to the eaves, as it was referred to. And Mr. Rosengarten, I think during construction of his home, said that this is his Chanticleer. It was mortgaged to the eaves. Um, so which one's true? I'm not sure. Maybe the truth lies somewhere in between. But the Pleasure Garden, uh, okay, so I, I've uh, mentioned the different gardens in the Delaware Valley. Um, 
one of the things that uh, we have to do is maintain our own personality when you have so many gardens in Arboreta in a, in a small area. And one of the ways we do that is we are not collections-based. We are not education-based. Uh, we are aesthetics-based, or I should say focused. That is to say, um, we don't put a lot of signage. There's not a lot of uh, inherent educational panels around the garden. We really want you to enjoy the aesthetic of the garden first, okay? This is just our choice and our direction that we have chosen. And for that reason, we want you to experience the pleasure of the garden first. Secondarily, we will be happy to provide the information through our plant lists, our what's in bloom sheets, um, just contacting any member of the staff at any time and asking the question. We will happily deliver the information from the absent labels and signs that you might expect in another more education-based garden. Excellent. And I know that has been a question for a lot of visitors is where are all the labels? But I love that philosophy of just being able to soak it in, experience it, and then you can go back to your digital photos or your notes and find out what that plant was. Exactly. And on that note, if if one should happen to visit the Chanticleer website, along the uh, heading bar there, um, plant information, you can scroll down there. All of our plant lists for each of the different areas, uh, primary areas in the garden, are available online for download at any time. Our master inventory is available online for anyone to peruse at any time. Um, our what's in bloom sheets, plus many images that are updated every week showing what's fresh, what's happening, the stage of the garden. And you can visit our YouTube channels and our Instagram uh, where you can see videos that we've been filming over the winter season while we were closed to show what happens in the garden in terms of preparation, projects, and just the aesthetics of the off-season garden uh, that due to our closure, we can't really share with guests. And when a visitor comes to Chanticleer, it's not normal to see somebody out weeding in the gardens or working. Can you talk about that concept? Oh, it's very normal. I can tell you right now, I'm looking out the window <laughs> and the whole crew. No, we are we are very real and very engaged. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the, the little magic elves don't disappear at opening time. Mm -hmm. No, we're out there in it, uh, especially at springtime. You know, we're, we're, there's so much to be done. Um, no, there's none of those smoke and mirrors. But one of the things we do try, Kath, when we are open to the public, is we go quiet. That is to say, you're not going to hear string trimmers. You're not going to hear mowers. Mm -hmm. You're not going to hear equipment. If there should happen to be an emergency or a tree comes down or a limb come down, we may fire up a chainsaw to sort of clear an area. But we take care of our noisy work on Mondays and Tuesdays, the two days that, of the week that we're closed, so that when we open to the public, we can be open and pleasant for people to enjoy. So we try to stay quiet, but certainly not out of the picture. I love that. As somebody who is plagued by leaf blowers and mow and blow crews all around me in my neighborhood, that's a wonderful way to escape. So your part of the garden is uh, not the same as what it started with, correct? The different gardeners move around to different gardens? It's a bit of a misconception, but it is based on a nugget of truth. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure if you know this, but I'm I'm in my 29th year here at Chanticleer. When you spend that much time at some place, there's bound to be some changes here and there. So over the course of those years, 
there have been some management, uh, not management, shall I say, uh, gardener positions have moved around and been shifted and altered and modified, um, myself included. Uh, but it, suffice it to say that all of my experience at Chanticleer has been in relation to the homes on the property. That is to say, the more of the courtyard experiences, um, architecturally defined spaces, um, not entirely, but but with a majority of them in that way, whether it's at our entrance and administration building or whether it's the main house Chanticleer proper and over a few years actually straddling both. Um, but I've always been uh, enamored with and basically focused on what I call the courtyard style, um, dealing with containers, uh, protected and defined bed spaces, and then, you know, outer beds out, outside of those spaces as well. And that brings us to our container talk. And that's interesting that you call it a courtyard style of gardening, or we, we might call it what most people do around their homes. Exactly. So as big and, and quote unquote fancy as Chanticleer may be, so many of the principles of what myself and David Mattern, my counterpart, um, we do, and I will refer to we, uh, because we share a lot of the containers, uh, the, the plants, the suppliers, the logistics, the storage. Um, David and I work very closely when it comes to our container combinations um, in that manner. So if I, if I simply refer to we, it's he and I that I'm speaking of. But you're absolutely right. So many of the principles that I employ every day apply to each of us in our smaller home, our apartment, our townhouse, our deck, our patio, or terrace, whatever, whatever space we have to work with and however we articulate that space, container, hanging basket, window box, whatever the vessel, whatever the location, these, uh, these ideas apply. And Chanticleer has so many beautiful and inspiring ideas to come and visit and kind of, I don't want to say steal, but maybe emulate is a better word for that. Kathy, let's face it. Some of the <laughs> best ideas are borrowed ideas. Don't you know that? Of course exactly. they are. We all take an idea and we build on it. We modify it. We spin it and present it as our own. That's how this creativity circle works. And where do you get your inspiration for the containers? It's funny. I was interviewed last week and I, I left that question blank. I said I'd get back to it. Well, I got back to it half a dozen times and I can't tell you any one spot, any one place that I derive my inspiration from because I derive my inspiration constantly. I just, as one of the benefits of getting, one of the very few benefits of getting a little bit older is I, I'm actually just taking time to look and see things and look at the whole world just the way the sun rises in the morning on the way to work and the shadows it casts. And well, what about backlighting my containers and how that I cite that in my patio and the terraces, you know, having the sun move through plants like that. Is it a garden visit? Of course it's a garden visit. Is it talking with friends about successes and failures? Of course it is. All of these are just one big tangle of, of inspiration that somehow melds into something every year. And I, I hope it's successful. And the beauty of our industry, Kath, is if our, if our combinations or our gardens are successful, that's fantastic. If they're not, nobody gets hurt. We can change it. We can fix it. 
It's okay. It's not brain surgery. It's a victimless uh, crime. Exactly. <laughs> it's the slowest of the performing arts and it's the most forgiving. Or as my friend said, it's not rocket surgery. I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> it's not that. It's a it's a mixed metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so how uh, far in advance do you plan out the containers for the next year? Are you doing that the fall or summer before for the next season? Um, certainly by fall, I'm having a good idea of what I want to approach, how I want to approach it next year. Um, I'd be lying to you if I say I already know what I'm doing next year right now. I'm just trying to get through this week, in all honesty. And then, um, you know, once things settle in, once we get past frost, which is generally around May 15th for us in this area, um, and the garden settles in, I would say early summer, I just begin thinking. And I, one of the things that's very difficult to explain to our young ones, our interns and new, new assistant horticulturists and new, new members of the team, is they always want to know when and how and what's the recipe and what's the order and what's the checklist. Well, I've never been that person. I would have been a terrible civil engineer, actually terrible. Um, I've never been that person. But what I've learned is when you, when you learn from your mistakes and you take notes of those and you think about those and consider, things will come to you, but you have to have the confidence to know it will come and you will execute it and it'll be successful. And if there's a problem, you pivot and you make the adjustment, but you have to have the confidence to know it's going to work and you go in with it with that and so often people are just intimidated. What is it? Uh, analysis paralysis, I think it is. Yeah, I've never been burdened with that. So I boldly go where sensible people fear to, tre fear to tread sometimes, but I've always enjoyed working in that manner. So taking chances, mixing things that maybe are, are defined as shouldn't go together um, is part of your philosophy. Absolutely. Have you ever, you, know, you, you say, you hear the expression, well, you can't do that. Have you ever seen the plants read the books? No, of course you haven't. So try it. Um, you know, life is too short for boring containers. Try some things to shake people up. There was an old expression that our first director, Chris Woods, used to employ. It took me a little while to buy into it, but I do I. There is some merit to it, and it's whether Chanticleer, and as an extension, my work here and my approach to, to horticulture is, whether it delights or disturbs, frankly, we don't care. We just want people to feel something. And if it moves you, either way, it had an effect. Hmm. And one thing you can always rely on, if you come to Chanticleer and you don't like my combinations and you don't like my display for the season, know confidently that they will be different next year. And maybe then you'll enjoy it. And if you do like them this year, that's fabulous. I'm trying to think of some plant combinations that would actually be disturbing to me. <laughs> you know, it's it's not so much combinations. Uh, mm -hmm. but what's very fun, it's fun to hear, is our, uh, our guests um, are very comfortable with their displeasure of certain colors. I have a certain affinity for the color orange. Not mm -hmm. everyone shares that love of orange. And they're very happy to tell you. Um, but sometimes just combinations may be a bit daring for some people. You know, it's it's a very varied audience. So there's there's a, there's a very mix of opinions, I should say. Yeah, I could see that that orange and some other strong colors would, would cause some aversion and, and take a little bit of getting used to. And fashions come in and out 
um, in plants as exactly. well. So what are the in plants that you think uh, that people should be using? <laughs> okay. Uh, that's, that's a funny question because I've never been in the in crowd. I really haven't. Um, but I'm, I'm laughing more to the fact that the in plants you should be using are the ones that are on the racks right now. Buy them, use them. Mm-hmm. Um, availabilities, Kathy. If you want a garden, get out there and buy them now. Okay. Availabilities are such this year. They're going so fast. And I I don't know if you've experienced this, if any of your interviews or anyone's talked about this, but remember this time last year, we were all hunkered down in full panic position. We didn't know what the heck was, was happening. Right. So, you know, orders were canceled from growers. Gardens were closed, ourselves included. Our garden industry was in chaos. Well, about midsummer, everybody started working from home and gardening at home. So sales picked up in a manner of speaking. Well, this year, most people are still at home and they're, as you know, fixing up their homes and fixing up their gardens and vegetable gardening and ornamental gardening. Our industry has had such an amazing upswell of participation that we've never seen before. There's no way we're going to keep all these individuals moving forward. But even if we could keep a percentage of them in our industry, it's going to be fantastic. So all this is saying that availabilities of plants are volatile at best. Um, They last for minutes. And the struggle is to find any material to work with. So what's the in-plant? It's the plant that's in your cart. Grab it. (laughs) Take it home and grow it, because if you go back tomorrow, it's not going to be there. It just won't be. And worse yet, our retailers and our independent garden centers, they can't even get the replacements. The growers can't keep up with demand. Yeah, it's such a a strange market when you think about living inventory and that there has to be a start a middle and a finishing off before it reaches the retailer. So uh, a lot of consumers don't understand that it's, you know, not, you can't snap your fingers and materialize, you know, another 50 flats of wave petunia. You can't turn on that plant machine, set it to white petunia and crank out a hundred of them. It just (laughs) doesn't work that way. Then you throw in climate. Mm -hmm. It's been a cold spring. We just, you know, greenhouses just can't, make them grow faster. So it's been a a challenging season. I'm not trying to duck your question. It's just that, you know, plants that I could endorse and even suggest may or may not be there. I'm happy to discuss a few things that I use uh, for early season display. Um, But um, take it with a a giant grain of salt. If you can get them, they're great. And if not, look for them in the future. and We can go that way if you'd like. Yeah, let's explore that a little bit. And maybe for your early season containers, uh, do you plant bulbs in the fall? And if so, how do you get success with those? That's a struggle for a lot of people in the Mid-Atlantic to have uh, bulbs in containers. Kathy, um, you're absolutely right. And I'm not exempt from that. All right. So I am not going to be able to give you the nugget that you're looking for in terms of integrating bulbs in your containers. I still, I'm a bit old school in this way. Um, I pot up and we do several gardens of bulb displays uh, in ground at Chanticleer, but I will always reserve several dozen bulbs from any ground display and pot them up generally in terracotta. We'll sink them into a cold frame in ground, uh, let them go into a cold dormancy and, and bring them out and display them 
because I like to have that that reference to the in-ground display in the containers as well, excuse me, generally in the location. But I don't integrate them with other plants in that forced container. I will have other containers of other accent plants working with them. More of a, a choir, if you will, uh, that can be assembled and reconfigured uh, in that way. And when someone's up, we'll put them forward. And when, when that plant goes over, if a tulip, forced tulip goes over, we can pull that container out and simply readjust the remaining combination and still have a nice, uh, nice display there. Um, but I, I, I don't really have the answer for that. One of our gardeners, uh, you know, the, when I say the plug trays, plug plants have become more important in our industry in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, we reserve several of those plug trays from plantings that we'll do during the season. But some of the smaller bulbs, the muscaris, the chionodoxas, um, the scillas, um, leucogium, um, they pot them up individually in those plug trays, put them into the same cold dormancy, so that in the springtime, these emerging bulbs can be knocked out of those plug trays in a little plug and then inserted into combinations that way. So I know that's done on site here. Uh, it's not something I do. I just simply have another approach. Um, it's one of the things we do here at Chanticleer, too, is we try not to uh, repeat or um, just mimic each other's aesthetic. We like mm-hmm. to have different aesthetics. So I have no problem not doing that and doing something else. That's a great idea, though, about the individual bulbs in, mm-hmm. in their little individual uh, pockets and then just being able to pop them in when you need them. It works really well. It just it doesn't work very well with some of the larger daffodils and narcissus mm-hmm. and some of the bigger tulips. They just physically don't fit into the plug tray. So think of the, the lesser bulbs, fritillarias and the like, uh, the little fritillaria miliagris, not the big crowned imperial, for example. There's a real practicality to what you can and can't do with those bulb trays. Plug trays, rather. Yes. And I was going to ask about summer bulbs. So I know alliums are used a lot at Chanticleer and are almost a signature plant, would would you say? Oh, absolutely. We certainly do use a lot of alliums. Um, most of the larger alliums are too big to use in a plug tray, for example. Um, so I... I certainly use alliums primarily in ground. I don't really, let, let, let me put it this way, with the alliums, the signature of Chanticleer or not, and we certainly do use a lot of them, and they're, they're great plants. Um, they bloom late spring, early summer for us generally. The reason I steer away from them in containers is because that is my transition time between spring container displays and seasonal summer container displays. So I would hate to interrupt Allium at the peak of what they're doing. However, I want to use Allium in the beds to distract when my spring plants are going over and my summer plants are just going in and not quite established. It's a bit of a distraction if you see those wonderful Alliums in the beds. Yeah, they definitely grab your attention. (laughs) They certainly do. Kath, before we get too far away, I just want to... We, we talked about some of the cool season plants. And like I say, we open April 1st, but we don't go frost free until about May 15th. Um, that's six weeks for us that we have, uh, you know, subject to frost. Uh, it's, it's just plain cold. The garden's emerging. Um, but there's a few, a, a few uh, cool season uh, annuals and, and tender perennials that I like to use. Uh, some of the osteospermums 
I think are absolutely fabulous. Wonderful color range on those. In the last few years, the Nemesias, uh, their color ranges are expanding. Um, again, delicate little flowers, but surprisingly durable uh, in the cold weather and the winds of April. And the Diaceas fall into that same category. I just mentioned the winds of April. I, I, I have this personal rant that I bring up in springtime every year, so I'm going to burden you all with this right now. And let's face it, none of us have any hope or dreams about March. It's March, okay? But we still, we still have a hope, a glimmer of hope for April, don't we? I mean, just a little one. Uh But I am convinced that April is the cruelest month because you have that hope and it's just crushed every year. So I'd be just as happy to pass on April and go from March directly to May, let me tell you if I could. But I can't do that. So so I use some of these plants to to muddle through April as best that I can. So I've, I've just rattled off a few flowering plants, but because April can be so cold and volatile and warm and everything at the same time, I rely on a lot of the vegetables not for consumption, but for display. Uh, For example, beets and mustards, lettuces and kales, rosemary and parsley, integrated with some of these flowering plants, any of those vegetables and herbs are surprisingly cold tolerant, vibrant in color, texture, and just durable, and they look great. And secondarily, I also use a lot of the newer Carexes that are available, some of the Everillos or the uh, the Prairie Fire um, Carexes. I think we have to think in terms of colors and textures for early season containers and not rely solely on flowers. One more addition to that. In the late winter, many of us are in our garden as part of good practice, are cutting back shrubs. Willows, yellow and red stem dogwoods, cotinus, uh, grapevine, for example. These are things that we would do in normal course in just garden management. Well, we use those brightly colored stems to accent some of our containers, okay? So the colors can accent or work with the plants that are in the pot. They can add some verticality to otherwise low or not yet established combinations. But one other thing, two other things, they can serve as very gentle supports uh, for the winds of April that whip through. Plants can sort of be propped up with these verticals. And then lastly, if worse comes to worse and the frost warning comes over the news the night before, because of those stems, you can walk outside and take an ordinary uh, plastic garbage bag, slide it over the entire container, and those stems become the support beams for your instant little greenhouse gets you through the night. So just a few little tips and tricks that we do just to get us through April. Yeah. And you wouldn't think April would be so traumatic, (laughs) but well, way up North here, Kathy, Mm -hmm. it's different. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it it is that month where you expect it to be so pleasant and nice. And there are beautiful days, you know, there certainly are. And then they trick you the next day. So you just have to wait for 12 hours, 24 hours later for the, for the good weather to to come back to you. 
Exactly. So, like I say, if we can hedge our bet with good plant choices and use some of those some of those non-living elements to sort of bridge and help us along, the combination of the two lets us get through April. Yeah, I love that idea with the the sticks for height and for protection and to make a little teepee over them for for your frost blanket. Exactly. And they're attractive too. So mm-hmm. do you follow that thriller, spiller, chiller combination? And you had said earlier that your interns were looking for that formula from you. Do you have just a throw it all in and see if it works? Or is there is there a formula? You know, I, 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 I have to say, when I first heard that thriller, spiller, filler idea years ago, I, 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 I scoffed at that a little bit. I really did. And it's just like, that's too simplistic. Well, I'm still scoffing at it quietly, but the fact of the matter is I think I am much closer to that than I am throw it all in a pot and see what survives. Um, that's just, that's, there's too much, there's, there, there's too much risk there. There's too much uh, uncertainty. No, I, I, want to, I want to plan. Okay. I don't necessarily break them down into those specifics of thriller, filler, and spiller, but I certainly look for plants that are going to do those jobs. So I guess in a way I do subscribe to that. But I, I point that out to our, our young ones, the interns, um, and anyone new to the, uh, to the whole field or somebody who's just putting their very first container out for the very first time. Look for something. Nobody wants to see something all mashed together. Spread it out. Look for something that will spill and tumble down the front of the container and maybe break that edge. Covering that edge of containers drives some people nuts, drives them crazy. Mm. It's just fun to watch people when you do that. <laughs> and obviously something in the middle to fill that that mass, that midsection of the container. And maybe it's two things. I, I, I generally tend to mash more in that midsection and then something just dramatic and you know, I was, I want to say out of proportion, but let's just stick with dramatic, uh, for that vertical accent. And, and when you bring those three together from the very top of the vertical accent to the very bottom of that pendulous one, look how big that arrangement is. It's, it's significantly larger than the container itself. And I just think it adds drama and impact. And frankly, um, you know, the, the courage of one's aesthetic, um, I think is very important. I think you need to put those combinations together and, and own them. You really do. And it's confidence in your aesthetic is so important. We all make mistakes, but like I say, it's not rocket surgery. We can fix it. <laughs> and so you talked about spreading out the plants a little bit, but mm-hmm. literally when you're potting up a, a container, do you plant them cheek by jowl? Do you allow a little bit of room for expansion? That's a very good question. Um, I would lean toward giving them room to grow. Okay. Uh, if you pack them in there too tightly, um, my, my fear is success. Okay. If all of those plants are successful, think about how many root zones and how many plants are struggling for the same nugget of nutrient and that same drop of water. Okay. You will become a slave to your containers for fertilizing and watering. If you pack them in truth to gel, like you say, I prefer the other way, let them space out a little bit and grow into their space. That will give them more media, that is to say, soil of whatever choice and component you use. More moisture holding capacity, more nutrient holding capacity per plant is going to yield better plants. It's going to be a little thinner in the beginning, 
but you will make it up by far moving into the season. And you won't be as much of a slave to watering um, and caring for those containers. And speaking of nutrient holding, does mm-hmm. Chanticleer have its own uh, proprietary soil mix? Do you purchase a commercial mix? And what, what do you fertilize with and how often? Wow, that is a loaded question. Okay, so over the years, uh, we've gone through many different versions of buying in soilless media, uh, mixes, uh, making our own. Um, The net result is we are currently making our own from our own compost. But let me just say that any of the general uh, soilless media potting mixes on the market for the most part, are just fine. I'm not going to endorse one over the other because, frankly, in order for any of them to be competitive in the market, they have to be within the range of their competition. And they're all pretty good. We happen to use uh, an in-house, uh, as I meant, as I mentioned, um, medium that we that we create from our compost and wood chips. Um, mainly, we're, we're just really trying this as sort of a long-range test. Uh, to see if we can become more sustainable ourselves, because we'd go through a lot of soilless media, a lot of plastic, a lot of transport. We're just trying to see how much load we can take off the system by doing it ourselves. Is it perfect? Not by any means. There are days I wish I just had a bag of ProMix and throw it in there. It'd be so much easier. Um, but we're really trying to see this this experiment through. Now, that's not to say that we won't tailor that mix for herbs and free draining plants. We will cut in stone, gravel, sand uh, to lighten and free free up drainage in that mix. Um, for the tropicals, lush foliar plants, drinkers, um, I will cut in practically straight compost into that same mix. And anyone can do that with the, uh, the soilless medias that they buy anywhere. Um, you can alter that mix to your specific need. Um, like I say, don't be afraid to tweak their recipe, um, even though the recipes are good to begin with. And for fertilizing, do you use a liquid fertilizer or a slow release or? Okay. Fertilizer. So, um, we, we use a, there's a, we use a range of different fertilizers and I'm just trying to get my story straight here. Um, I mentioned using compost. I believe, and I have done this for years, whatever mix I'm using, whether it's, uh, a bag of, of soilless media that I purchased from outside or whether it's our own in-house uh, soilless media. In general, I fill all of my containers one half to two thirds with heavy, rich compost. And then I put the remaining mix on top of that. Okay. That allows young plants and small plants to establish quicker. Their, their small roots, their young roots can work into that easier mix faster. And then when the heat of summer and the moisture demands really kick in, then those roots can plunge into that thick, rich moisture and micronutrient laden compost and really take advantage of it. Haven't forgotten your fertility question. If you can put that compost in the bottom, if you can put a mix in there that will hold nutrient, it really helps your fertilizer regime. In the springtime, when we first plant, we will water in with one of the, when I say the blue juice, the liquid fertilizers. Those are immediately accessible. And the young plants in production in the greenhouses are pretty much on an IV drip of that nutrient every day. 
And as soon as they get to your home, your garden, your pot, your terrace, that nutrient drip has stopped. So you have to get some of that. You know what I'm saying when I say blue juice, liquid uh-huh. fertilizer, whether it's blue or green or yellow, um, get some of that on them. Not necessarily strong, just you just have to keep that fertility going until they can establish their own root systems. Fish emulsion is another one that we'll use on a lot of our vegetables and herbs. Um, works the same. Smells terrible. Works the same. Good stuff, though. Okay. Some people will ask about the, uh, the osmotic fertilizers, the osmocote and the slow releases. Absolutely fine. And I do use those on occasion as well. But remember in the springtime, they are not as important. Now, I'm speaking very generally here, and there are certainly exceptions to this. But in general, most of those osmotic or slow-release fertilizers really don't become active until soil temperature is at about 70 degrees. Okay? That is their formulation. That's how they're designed to work. So you could pile that fertilizer on top of your, your plants, your pots at this time of year, But honey, if it's 37 degrees out there, they're not getting any fertilizer. It's how it's engineered, okay? So that's why the liquid fertilizers are important at this time of year because they are accessible and they are getting in. Once soil temps come up, then those osmotic fertilizers generally will begin to become active and carry you through the season, okay? So I use a mix of osmotics as well as liquids And that's mainly just so that there's no weak spots in the fertilizer balance. I use them complementary, I should say, um, so there's no dropouts in fertility. With the compost in the bottom of the pot for that wonderful micronutrient accessibility down there too. Excellent. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Dan. Love it. As a, as a plant parent, um, asking you to choose favorites and maybe not so favorites. So perhaps some hits or misses from past containers, things that you loved using that you use again. And then maybe some things that you said, maybe this doesn't play well with others and I, I won't put it back in a container again. Well, Kathy, I'm happy to tell you I've only had successes in my life. 100% successes. <laughs> I've never had a problem. So I'll just try to limit it that uh, with my successes. Um, I, I, I have to say, and I, maybe I'm just playing a glutton for punishment, but uh, even though they're not hardy, the agaves, sort of collectively, mm-hmm. um, it's nothing you want to get warm and fuzzy and cozy with, really. But when it comes to architecture and impact, um, there, there's really nothing that compares and you know as well as many of your listeners do that uh, we are at Chanticleer, myself really specifically, go to a lot of trouble to move pretty big agaves. But you move big agaves into a garden, it makes a pretty darn big impact too. But you don't need to move big ones. You can start small. And there's many of these wood lilies. And I, I'm really thrilled with this whole new range of uh, the mangaves. That is the, uh, the hybrid between manga- uh, agave and manfreda. They're these wonderful agave-like plants, but without so many of the spines and the bloodletting. Wonderful variation. And they are really hitting the market now and are a wonderful sort of substitute. They're drought tolerant. They're easy to work with. And the architecture is undeniable. Um, Pound for pound, switching gears here, pound for pound, pound cannas. Let's just face it. 
Nothing performs like a canna in the mid-Atlantic, in the summertime, in a big pot. Many different colors of flowers, many different wonderful foliage varieties. They just work. It's the one plant that I always recommend for first timers or uh, um, you know, new people to um, this, this crazy business we're in. Um, cannas are just so successful. Once you've had success with cannas, then you can maybe vary into some gingers, but uh, there's such a long growing season that often uh, frost will take them first, at least for us. I want to be honest with you, failures. What have I had challenges with? Um, the one thing you have to consider in a public garden, Kathy, is that if something is not 90% or better, I have to seriously evaluate it. In my home garden, I may be more tolerant of ill-performing plants and be a little bit more lenient and just say, well, we'll limp along with that mediocre plant. I can't do that at Chanticleer, so I, I pretty swiftly have to take them out of the lineup. Um, now, whether that was a failure on my part or the siting or it was just a poor performing plant, I don't really always have time to ask those questions or more importantly, answer those questions. I just have to act. Uh, and get something more appropriate and better in there. And I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm killing time right now and scouring my memory bank <laughs> to think of uh, really plants that just underwhelmed and failed, but frankly, they were gone so quickly. I, I I'm not remembering them. A personal one that, I, that I've had experience with was one that did a little too well. And that's some of the sweet potato vines that just devoured the rest of the containers or, uh, you know, container plantings. So I feel like I'm constantly fighting sometimes with sweet potato vines to keep them in check. Kathy, that's an excellent point. Okay. So thank you. Thank you for triggering a memory. I did a container workshop for a local garden club um, earlier this week. And so last weekend, I, I did go out to the garden center and did some shopping. And it's wonderful when you're spending other people's money and buying plants. It's, it's the best thing there is, really. Um, came, came around the corner, and there was a whole display of the Ipomea, the sweet potato vines. And I was thinking, oh, that, that's great, but these are all small containers. And I started looking at them. I started looking at the labels. The breeding and selection is wonderful. They're all the color, the chartreuse, the burgundies of sweet potatoes that we've had in the past are now being repeated in smaller, more diminutive, more compact forms, okay? Whether it's cut leaf or whether they're entire leaf, chartreuse, burgundy, there's so many new selections out there. And like you say, they're dialing back on that vigorous growth and making them more appropriate for container display, as opposed to sort of large bedding displays. Um, Alternanthera, Dentata ruby, um, another wonderful plant that I used years ago. The problem is it would just cover the whole patio after one good growing season. But breeding is reining that plant in and making it more appropriate for container combinations. Uh, but sometimes you still want the full runner too, but now we have options that we never had before. That's a great point that plant breeders are doing wonderful things these days. And do you have any plants in trial currently or looking forward to the season that you're going to try out and report back to us? Um, that's that's a fair question. So we don't really do many trials here. Uh, I had mentioned the mangabes. That is the closest thing to an in-ground trial that I have right now. And I'm into the second season with them. Unfortunately, I put them out three weeks ago and they took a hit with that frost 
um, a few weeks ago, and, and they're still recovering. They will recover. They just need some heat. Uh, so that's, um, I've got 39 different cultivars in one area, all growing in the same condition, uh, in an aesthetic display, not in a trial garden per se. So we can look at them very close up. And if you come to Chanticleer, there's no missing them. You will see them. Um, other things that I'm trying, I mentioned some of the Carexes, the uh, Carex Testacea Prairie Fire, one called Amazon Mist and Carex Everillos. Um, one of my aesthetics, uh, one, one of my displays this year, the aesthetic is calling for a lot of grass and grass-like um, plants. So I'm using a lot of these different Carexes in the same growing condition. And it's going to be interesting to see which ones really perform and which ones, well, may not. So all I can say is stay tuned. Um, but I always dabble with some new, but I have a little insurance policy of some plants that have always worked with me in any given combination. It's the insurance and the risk in a good balance. And always have plan B, C, and D in the wings, right? You got that right. <laughs> so um, finishing up our container gardening conversation, I wanted to mm-hmm. talk about maybe some non-plant elements in containers or maybe some unusual uses of plants. And one of my favorite things always when I visit Chanticleer is to see that floating bouquet. Um, can you describe that for our listeners? The floating bouquet. Um, someone made reference to it as the floral mandalas, I believe it was. Um, I scratched my head because I wasn't sure what they were talking about. Um, floating flowers is another term. So these are simply containers, and most of us have containers with drainage holes in them, but occasionally we'll find a container that's absolutely gorgeous. We can't live without it. We take it home and we realize there's no drainage hole in there. So before you rush, to drill that hole in that pot, consider having a wet pot, okay? So a wet pot can be a combination of plants that love, absolutely love wet-footed situations like bulrushes or uh, saracenas, um, um, some of the different aquatics that way. But the other way you can go is simply filling that pot with water, perhaps close to a garden bench or a place where you actually sit or at least relax in your garden. Fill it with water and simply go out into your garden and pluck blossoms, stems, leaves, and float them on that water. You don't have to fill the pot. Maybe it's just a few blossoms, a few petals, a leaf. And it's just a snapshot of what's happening in your garden that day. The nice thing about the spring is the water stays cool and the blossoms tend to last two or three days. As we get into summer, the warmer water Flowers can spoil after a day or so, and you generally have to recharge, uh, recharge that water after a few days as it gets a little, a little questionable. But it's that assembly of flowers floating on the water, as simple and as, it's, it's as inexpensive as it is, really gives a wonderful snapshot of what's happening in your garden that day or that week. So cheap and so easy to do. Um, I think it's really catching on now. Yeah, and so lovely. And as you say, it, it gives you a little introduction to what you see in the rest of the garden. So it's a great element to have towards the entrance of your garden. To exactly. Say. And by definition, every time you do it, every time a visitor to your garden sees it, it is going to be different. It will really never, ever be the same. And any other non-plant elements, do you ever sneak in some plastic dinosaurs? 
Oh, well, I mean, really, anybody worth their weight should be passing, putting in <laughs> dinosaurs and little green army men. Absolutely. Yes. You definitely need them. They improve drainage and just they really just zing up a container combination. <laughs> That's a good idea. I need to think about that. Um, Non-elements. I, I will incorporate um, if I'm doing sort of a, oh, a lush, a lush sort of uh, verdant combination. Sometimes I'll use um, bits of wood. That is to say, like a stump or a, a maybe a moss covered uh, beam um, piece of black locust or something out of the woods close by just to sort of reinforce and impart a really verdant, lush look to a container. Maybe it's a, a really wonderful stone or rock that one has found in a visit or a, a, a walk around the garden. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not, I personally, I'm not one for mirrored balls or, um, and you know what, I, and I don't mean that disparagingly. It's just that that's not my style. However, um, I have been known to find beach glass and mulch my some of my agaves. Um, I like to put stone or gravel mulches around the agaves as an example. And sometimes just little fragments of complementary colored beach glass find their way um, to echo some of the color tones of the agaves, often greens or blues. Um, and I almost do that subconsciously. I don't really think about it. It just sort of happens. Hmm. Um, but don't be afraid to mulch your containers with appropriate mulches. As I mentioned, stones, uh, crushed glass I've seen. Um, let's see what else. Crushed brick or tumbled brick. Um, these are just a few of different um, container mulches that I've seen over the years of looking at other people's and other gardeners' uh, container combinations. Nice. So any final advice for uh, a gardener who's maybe done containers for, for a few years, but they've fallen into the, the same old, same old habit? Okay. Number one, do not be afraid to mix your vegetables with your flowers. Okay. Try that. Just one simple step. Incorporate some vegetables or herbs into your container combinations with your flowers. Number two, don't be afraid of foliage. Okay. Not everything has to bloom to be effective. Consider the foliage. And lastly, work some architecture into your combinations, whether it's a yucca, a cordyline, an agave, or a mangave, something that is just distinctly architectural to work with and add some balance to otherwise very flowery or very uh, lush uh, displays. I think those are three principles that anyone can try find their comfort level, make the adjustments if they do or don't like it, uh, but know that they've tried something, um, that they've stepped outside of their comfort zone. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dan, for sharing your container tips and wisdom. And I can't wait to get up to Chanticleer soon to check out this season's planters. Well, we would love to have you, Kathy, and any one of your listeners that would like to come see us. Feel free to visit our website, chanticleergarden.org, spelled C-H-A-N-T-I-C-L-E-E-R. We're in Wayne, Pennsylvania, about 17 miles west of downtown Philadelphia, and uh, we would love to have you. Thank you, Dan. You're very welcome, Kathy. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk today.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Euphorbia plant profile. Euphorbia, also known as spurge, is an easy care perennial plant that deserves a place in your garden. Aside from being low maintenance, it is deer resistant, drought tolerant, and long blooming. It is hardy to zones 4 through 10. Euphorbia prefers full to part sun and well draining soils. Some plants are short lived and need to be dug and divided every few years. Euphorbia is also easy to propagate by taking stem cuttings, stripping off the lower leaves, and rooting them in a soilless potting mix. The common garden spurge is the same family, Euphorbaceae, as poinsettia, croton, castor oil plant, and several kinds of succulents. One thing you will notice that many have in common is they exude a white milky sap when a stem is broken. Be careful when pruning them as this sap can be a skin irritant and harmful if you get it in your eyes. Like their poinsettia cousin, the Spurge's so-called flowers are actually modified leaves called bracts. These stay on for a long time and lend great color appeal to these decorative plants. Spurge are available in colors ranging from bright chartreuse to deep burgundy. Popular varieties include Ascot Rainbow, Glacier Blue, and Polychroma. Euphorbia, you can grow that. What's new this week? Well, first I wanna give a big shout out and thanks to our newest listener supporter, Rodney Burton. Thanks, Rodney. In the vegetable plot, we've been thinning out our cool season seedlings, radishes, turnips, and lettuce, and of course, adding those to our salads because those are all edible too. And my purple broccoli are starting to form little purple heads. And if you know me at all, I'm a big fan of the color purple. So I am exceedingly excited to see how these look on the dinner table once I can harvest them. Back in my home garden, it is azalea time. They are coming into their prime right now and I am just blown away about how beautiful they look. I'm going to let the latest cool weather actually take the credit for this, for the blooms hanging on longer and looking just sparkly bright and beautiful uh, this April. Locally, there are some plant sales coming up that I wanted to let you know about. First is the Beltsville Garden Club sale on May 1st, and you can find out more about that at beltsvillegardenclub.org. 
That has been moved from High Point High School to the Greenbelt Community Center parking lot. So double check on that location before you head out that morning. And plants go fast is all I can say to advise you on that. Uh, the next weekend, Silver Spring Garden Club is having their annual plant sale and they are back at Brookside Gardens. And that starts at 9 a.m. on the 8th of May. And you can find out more details about that at silverspringgardenclub.com. Another upcoming sale that should be on your radar is the Blandy Garden Fair. And the Blandy Experimental Farm is the State Arboretum of Virginia. And that happens both Saturday and Sunday of Mother's Day weekend. And you can find out more about that at blandy.virginia.edu. And a final sale to check out locally in the D.C. area is Glen Carlin Library. That's on Sunday, May 16th from 10 to 2 in Arlington, Virginia. And you can go to their Facebook group, uh, the Glen Carlin Library Community Garden, to check that out. And I'm happy to announce a few garden tours are back this season with social distancing and all precautions in place. And one coming up is the Garden Club of Chevy Chase on May 2nd. And another one to look out for is the Shepherd Park neighborhood of Washington, D.C., and that will be on May 16th. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine. Mm-hmm.